We are um, sitting here in New York City with Ibrahim Karahim. Am I saying your name right? I want to get a voice level on you so you can tell me your name. Well, my name is Ibrahim Karain. I'm co-owner of Palestine Press Services and publisher of Al-Audi magazine, both English and Arabic. Palestine Press Services was ordered to be closed. Which is what we're here to talk about, amongst other things. Uh, Ibrahim, on March 30th, which is land day, the Palestine Press Service was closed by the Israeli authorities. I want to start with a very easy question. Why was the service closed? Were you not uh, cooperating with the Israeli authorities? And what were the Israeli authorities' uh, reasons for closing the Palestine Press Service? Well, I believe the Palestine Press Services was closed for the simple idea. They wanted to apply the policy of a complete blackout concerning what happens in the occupied territories. Closing down Palestine Press Services uh, came uh, in compliance with announcing the whole area as a closed area in front of all foreign journalists, in front of the press. It is the same policy applied uh, within the same approach adopted by the Israeli policies concerning the media. They regard the media as a hostile uh, service. Uh, this is what I believe uh, the, 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 the reason is. Now, the Israelis claim that Palestine Press Services is uh, serving the PLO, which is something uh, w which was not said officially. It, this is the version said by the Israeli radio. The officially uh, reason was that we disturbed the public order. Were you uh, submitting to censorship? Of course, we used to submit everything to the censorship. Everything was okayed, and we could not publish anything if it was not okayed by the Israeli military censorship. Okay, before we get into the uh, forms of Israeli military censorship, I'd like you to tell me, if you could, about the setup of the Palestine Press Service, what role, what function your organization played in the dissemination of news to the international community, and also to the Palestinian community in the occupied territories. Well, our function was simply similar to any function of any news agency. Being Palestinians, of course, we had better access to the Palestinian community. So I might say that uh, concerning the two main elements for a news agency, that is speed and accuracy, we were the most accurate and speedy news agency that w covered incidents that took place in Palestine. You provided stringers for foreign press services, for, for example, network television for in the United States or in Europe? Most of the foreign correspondents based in Jerusalem uh, subscribe to our services, in addition to embassies in Tel Aviv, consulates in East Jerusalem. We also uh, served them contacts. We took journalists around, of course, on uh, subscription base or on uh, daily payments. Could you talk about uh, the role of the Israeli military authorities prior to the complete closure of the Palestine Press Service? Um, what kind of repressive measures did you suffer prior to March 30th? Did your organization suffer? You know, well, all kinds of harassments, first of all, regarding the Palestinian journalists who worked for the office. Many of them were arrested. I would count 13 journalists were arrested. Uh, closing down areas, and first of all, it is the Israeli approach to Palestinian journalists. Palestinian journalists are not approached as journalists, but as activists. So if a demonstration takes place and a Palestinian journalist is found there, 
he will be arrested similar to all those participating in a demonstration. They closed down several other uh, offices belonging to correspondence of Palestine Press Services. I would mention here the office in Gaza, the office in Bethlehem. They arrested our correspondent in uh, Jenin. So they did all kinds of possible harassments in order to stop our uh, normal function. Did they uh, try the journalists who were arrested, or did they just detain them? Well, a trial is something that does not exist there. I mean, they don't uh, need to charge or to try uh, any journalist arrested. Actually, they can take anyone, put him, uh, interrogate him, and afterwards they can uh, serve him with an administrative uh, detention order. Well, maybe this is where we should uh, invite Anon Zikroni. Could you tell me how the, uh, the law functions, how um, Palestinian journalists come to be detained? Uh, I guess it would be called administrative detention without a judiciary process. According to international law, administrative detention is allowed. Uh, but uh, the, there are now more than 2,500 prisoners that are detained under administrative orders. And uh, <clears throat> every lawyer would oppose such a detention uh, because it's actually a detention without a trial. No charges are brought before the detainees. And uh, there is no real uh, legal, uh, I would say, um, control or uh, a judge, uh, actually, decision in putting uh, detainees in prison. Uh, according to the law that exists now in the occupied territories, you can actually appeal against the detainee, <coughs> against the decision. But it's not automatically reviewed by a judge. You have to appeal. And most of detainees actually do not appeal. And the reason is very simple. Uh, they want to know what are the charges. And then uh, the <clears throat> military commander comes and says that he is not, uh, uh, he's, uh, he's not able to reveal those charges because those are <clears throat> secret charges. And he gives some information to uh, the judge, but the detainee the, the himself or his lawyer can't actually cross-examine the representative of uh, the security forces in order to find out if there are real charges. So it's uh, an unnormal situation. So this administrative detention lasts for uh, six months or up to six months or sometimes longer? Actually, uh, the limit is six months, but uh, they are entitled to renew the order, and it, uh, theoretically... They, it, it is possible to renew it indefinitely. I'd like to um, ask you, Ibrahim, about censorship, the different types of censorship that different journalists coming from uh, different perspectives have to endure in Israel and in the occupied territories. There are the foreign journalists, there are the Palestinian journalists, there are the Israeli Jewish journalists. Could you delineate for me the differences, the different kinds of treatment um, and uh, situations they encounter? Well, uh According to the law, all journalists there uh, have to submit their material to the censorship before publication. 
uh, in practice, you know, the foreign journalists are uh, the ones who are spoiled most. I mean, they can just file their stories and then wait uh, in a t terms of challenge, you know, to the Israelis, wait until what the Israelis might do. Actually, during the uprising, we had at least two cases in which, you know, the correspondents right to assume their uh, function as journalists were stopped. Uh, I think the Washington Post correspondent and the uh, uh, NBC correspondent. Uh, so I would say that most of the foreign correspondents just do not give a damn. When it comes to the Israeli journalists, there is a kind of an agreement. So they are in a better position uh, they do not submit everything to the censorship except uh, issues that are of very highly military uh, nature. When it comes to the Palestinians, the story is completely different. Everything, literally speaking, must be submitted to the censorship. Every title, subtitle, picture, anything. Even adverts. <laughs> yes. They have to send, they should send it to the uh, control of the censor. So everything in particular must be submitted to the censorship, and there are cases that uh, actually make the issue ridiculous. As a matter of fact, there are no rules. It depends on the mood of the, censor of the censorship. It is, yeah, it is uh, personal, it is subjective, you know. Uh, uh, it depends on the interpretation of the person sitting there, uh, who is a military uh, personnel. Uh, it depends upon his uh, explanation of the issue. He can decide that anything, even uh, growing vegetables nowadays, has become uh, a military issue. So they can censor any article that uh, encourages people to plant uh, vegetables or grow chickens in their households. So the issue of military uh, subjects is uh, subjective, you know, when it comes to the military censorship. Well, with that in mind, I'd like to ask you a question about self-censorship. You've always been uh, subject to censorship by the Israeli authorities. And just to keep your press service alive, how have you adapted to this uh, type of censorship, which admittedly has become much worse in recent times, but how have you adapted to it over the years? And what kind of self-censorship have you been forced to uh, accept when we speak about Palestine Press Services, the story is uh, a rather different one because we deal with foreign correspondents and foreign embassies and, and consulates. And therefore, uh, we used to submit all the news items, and the news items, uh, they only can censor the news item. Uh, except for certain items that deal with the leaflets of the unified uh, leadership, uh, resignation of um, municipal councils. Uh, speaking about the Lauda, uh, uh, Palestinian journalists working in printed uh, press, uh, they, they uh, always uh, have this self-censorship. Most of them become poets. So they write vague uh, articles that, uh, in order to understand these articles, you must uh, take a course in literature. So these poems are actually published, and they're published for the population who might or might not know what uh, the verse actually means? 
Well, certainly, yes, I'm speaking about articles concerning news items dealing with uh, daily events. Uh, the printed papers must go to the Israeli radio or Israeli TV. In other words, there is nothing called a Palestinian point of view about the events that uh, deals with their uh, daily life, essential subjects. Uh, I'd like it if you could both address what other publications uh, and services have been closed by the authorities in recent times. I'd like to uh, ask you, um, Anon, about the um, repression of journalists, not just with the Palestine Press Service, but with other journalists uh, as well. Israel is a democracy. So uh, Jewish uh, journalists or Israeli journalists actually are not, uh, are not being arrested, and they are free to write everything in the <coughs> uh, Israeli newspapers. But uh, there were some cases when uh, <coughs> newspapers were closed. For instance, one of our dailies, the name is Hadashot, the meaning is news, uh, was closed. Uh, because they didn't submit uh, material to the censor connected with the uh, affair of uh, killing four Palestinians, the story of uh, bus number 300. I don't know if you are familiar with the story. And uh, after publishing it without uh, uh, submitting the material to the censor, uh, the censor, or actually the interior minister, decided to close the newspaper for three days they appealed against the decision to the High Court of Justice, and the decision was confirmed. Now, another Israeli newspaper, uh, El Itihad, it's an Arabic uh, daily newspaper, was closed uh, for a few days uh, in connection of uh, the Land Day. They published uh, some material. Uh, it was decided that uh, the material is inciting, and uh, they didn't appeal against the decision. But regularly, you can find in the Israeli dailies a lot of criticism, uh, a lot of articles that are not submitted to the censor because those articles uh, are not uh, uh, gi uh, giving information. They are just criticizing the government. And uh, it, is, it is acceptable according to the, the system in Israel. And could you talk to me about the uh, individual reporters and editors and journalists? What, what kind of repercussions have they had to face by the Israeli authorities if they have either not uh, agreed to submit to censorship or whatever? According to the law, and the law is the amended law, it's the emergency regulations, you have to submit everything to the censor, which is connected with security. Uh, and they are submitting a material that uh, includes uh, security details to the censor. Uh, but uh, as I said before, we don't have any problems within Israel. We have problems in the occupied territories. For instance, sometimes they prevent Israeli uh, journalists uh, to visit the occupied territories by closing uh, the area. Uh, you can see uh, military units uh, having with them an, a closer order, open without details. And when a 
journalist comes to the area in the occupied territories, they are issuing the order. Uh, sometimes they are filling the name of the journalist or just uh, saying that the, the area is closed and those journalists are not allowed to visit those territories. Now, this would be before the uprising as well. This is for the past period of time, 20 years, 21 years? No, I would say that it is only after the uprising. Because uh, before uh, the uprising, they were absolutely free to talk with Palestinians, uh, to interview Palestinians, to visit the territories. And all those limitations came actually after the uprising. Could uh, we talk about the uh, various publications and, um, that have been closed by the Israeli authorities? Yeah, first of all, I, my friend Damnon would allow me, I think, announcing an area closed is, has been a measure used often by the Israeli authorities uh, before the uprising. For instance, uh, whenever there was a demonstration, uh, they could not allow the journalists to cover that by announcing it uh, a military zone. Although they closed some areas, Israeli journalists uh, actually came to those areas uh, without permission, and nobody actually took any, any, uh, uh, put any charges against them although they came to those closed territories. Do you care to comment on that? Well, I remember uh, very well in 1980, we were kicked out from uh, Nablus area together with some foreign and Israeli journalists uh, because they announced the area of Nablus as a military zone. This was in 1980 or 81. So this is well before the uprising. It could be seen as a precursor to what has happened since the uprising has begun. But they didn't prevent uh, Israeli journalists from uh, publishing their stories. All the yeah, yeah. But they still were not able to witness the uh, full range of events. Yeah, some of them tried to come again, and some of them succeeded in entering uh, again to those uh, areas, not Palestinians, but Israeli uh, journalists. Would you say that since the uprising has begun, that the uh, wall has become more impenetrable by uh, journalists into the West Bank? Ibrahim? Uh, well, of course, I mean, the Israeli authorities do, do their best to make what you have just mentioned uh, come to, real, uh, to, to materialize what you have mentioned. But on the other hand, you know, journalists would again do their best to penetrate the unpenetratable. So I should su suppose, you know, of course I can't prove it, but some journalists would succeed to enter uh, closed areas as well. Okay, now let's talk about the uh, other publications that have been closed, or the publications. Uh, well, the story, I think, uh, goes back to 1981 when Ashra magazine was closed. Ashra was published in 1975. Again, after that, the license of a newspaper called Al-Wahde was revoked after its owner, you know, passed away. And uh, his family wa uh, was not allowed to continue its publication. Uh, the authorities uh, tried to close down Palestine Press Services and allowed the magazine in 1984. Uh, after that, Al-Mithaq 
newspaper and Al-Ahd magazine, uh, both of them were closed. Uh, Al-Darb newspaper was also closed. Al-Quds press office owned by Sam'an Khouri, which was uh, stationed in Jerusalem, was closed. Al-Manar press office owned by Hanna, uh, Hani Aysawi was closed in September 1982. Uh, Al-Fajr al-Shaab and Al-Quds have all been closed for uh, various periods of time under the pretext that they abused censorship rules. Uh, Al-Mawqif weekly uh, newspaper was closed for three months. Uh, Gaza press office closed also. This office was owned by uh, Hassan al-Wahidi. And finally, Palestine Press Services and Al-Audi were closed uh, last March. And upon closure of these publications, what has happened to the journalists, the editors, and the reporters? Of course, clo closing down a, a newspaper means, you know, sending uh, people uh, home and making them jobless. So you have this humanitarian uh, factor as well. Uh, most of these journalists are members of the Arab Journalist Association. They uh, try to find uh, jobs, uh, and many of them have uh, to change, actually, their career, and probably start doing something else. Did you want to add something? Yeah, I would like to give you the argument, actually, of the state attorney, connection with uh, freedom of expression in the occupied territories. Now, the basic argument is uh, uh, that freedom of expression is not allowed in uh, occupied territory, according to conventions and uh, international law. Um, freedom of expression is a political right, argues the Attorney General, and as a political right, you can't actually uh, achieve such such a right because you don't, uh, you don't have a political life or you don't have a democracy in the occupied territories. And of course, the argument is uh, absolutely wrong because freedom of expression is not connected only with uh, political rights. It is connected with uh, human basic rights which are more than political rights, and everyone has a right to express himself. And by limiting freedom of expression, actually, you are affecting basic rights. I would like to ask my friend Amnon this simple question. Now, the Israeli authorities claim that Jerusalem is annexed, and therefore most of these publications are uh, stationed in Jerusalem, licensed by the Israeli Interior Ministry. So uh, it seems that even in, although we Palestinians do not recognize the annexation, of course, but don't you see a contradiction? I have to thank to my colleague for a new appointment as representing the Attorney General of Israel. I'm not representing the Attorney General of Israel. And uh, I agree with my friend that they should... Uh, act otherwise towards uh, newspapers, at least those newspapers that are issued in East Jerusalem. But uh, for a moment, allow me to be a representative of the Attorney General. The argument is that those uh, newspapers inciting 
inciting the people in the occupied territories. And that's the reason why they actually establish so many limitations on them. Have, have the pamphleteers, um, the pamphlets that have been issued, have they been able to uh, take the place of the closed press services? Well, uh, the pamphlets are pamphlets, you know. And, of course, uh, they do not obtain any permission. And more, more, more than that, they write anything they want to write. Now, they have... Uh, become very popular. Actually, the whole population uh, follows the instruction that is uh, founded in, the, in these leaflets. And I wish, you know, uh, the newspapers, the Palestinian newspapers, would be regarded as uh, sacred, you know, uh, writings. As the pamphlets are. Well, so to speak. <laughs> but, you know, concerning the newspapers, the that obtain permission, you know, they are similar newspapers. They can contain things that people like or dislike. Don't, uh, don't identify uh, yourself with the pamphlets, otherwise you will find yourself in prison, at least in an administrative detention, so be careful. I hope there has been no identification. I'm stating that <laughs> reality, you know, something that is there. I'd like to uh, ask you a question about South Africa. There have been numerous comparisons between uh, Israeli uh, treatment of Palestinians with the way the Pretoria government in South Africa uh, deals with the majority population of black people. Um, some of the more striking parallels are the uh, administrative detention, the press censorship, the um, government telling Palestinians where they can live, where they can't live, and so on and so forth. There has been some discussion uh, amongst um, supporters of the anti-apartheid movement that the press actually voluntarily withdraw from the region, that the press boycott the region rather than give in to press restrictions and press censorships. The reason why is a lot of times when, when people are reading what is happening in South Africa, they're not aware of the fact that the journalists have had to submit to, to censorship, either self-censorship or military censorship. And since they don't do that, since they don't write in their publications, this piece went through the military censors, People think that uh, the turmoil, the violence has abated. The same could be said in the West Bank and Gaza. People in this country may actually think that the uprising no longer exists, that the brutal beatings, the tear gas, the rubber bullets, and so on and so forth are no longer being used against the Palestinian population. Has there been any similar discussion about uh, with the, the press that maybe the press should uh, voluntarily remove itself from the region until it no longer has to submit to restrictions and censorship? Um, no, I don't think so. The, still, the Middle East, you know, uh, is a place where you find many, many uh, journalists there. As a matter of fact, uh, concerning the uprising, uh, it continues. And it depends a lot on uh, how do you interpret the uprising. For me, the interpretation is very simple. It means saying no to occupation, if you like, uh, or it means putting the relationship between the occupiers and occupied in the right category, that is, forcing the occupiers uh, to impose its will by force 
on the occupied. That is, Palestinians do not behave or do not do anything in relation with the occupiers except by force. And this is the normal relationship. Yes, but three months ago on network television in this country, we were all very aware of the relationship between the occupied and the occupiers. However, now, because of the uh, restrictions imposed upon television cameras, for example, which was a very important way of communicating the reality of life in the occupied territories, we no longer have those pictures. We no longer see the beatings. We no longer see the brutality. Objectively speaking, I don't think it has very much concerning what happens in the area or the ban on the journalists. It has to do very much with the nature of the press. The uprising has been taking, uh, going on for eight months now, and I don't think the press can uh, keep the uprising, you know, on the first page. But this has nothing to do with the with the permission or the ban of the journalists. Uh, it has to do a lot with uh, how the international community would like to read about the uprising. I think now. Uh, Stories uh, about the uprising find uh, their place on the third or fourth page. Uh. They don't find their way into network television, and most of the news that's consumed in this country is consumed via network television. So if it's not covered in the television, in the broadcast evening news, then to many people in this country it simply does not exist. And this helps to shape the censorship, this repression of journalists' activities helps to shape the international community's awareness, and certainly the U.S. Jewish community plays a very important role in what happens in Israel. Well, I'll give you this example of one of my friends who was uh, a bureau chief of one of the TV uh, networks uh, without mentioning his name. There were demonstrations in a village called Deir Ammar that, that was uh, one and a half months ago when the Israelis allowed the schools to be reopened. So his crew went to that uh, town where severe demonstrations took place and some, uh, some people died, sadly speaking. So his crew went back with this story, and he looked at it and said, God, I mean, this means that the uprising uh, has begun. Why don't you bring me a story about schools being opened, the children going to school? So he dropped that story. So it doesn't mean his crew couldn't see what, uh, what was happening. It means that he wanted a different kind of news. Uh, okay. Let's talk a little bit about South Africa. Uh, I would say that each system <coughs> stands for itself. And uh, there is, of course, uh, it's absolutely different. Apartheid is a rational uh, political system, and uh, we don't have such a system in the occupied territories. The limitations are political. Sometimes they are based on uh, security grounds, but uh, you don't have... Uh, all those rational, uh, actually, rules that exist in South Africa. So you even, even about where Palestinians may live and where they may not live, and what kind of activities on a daily level they can engage in, activities, what some people would call human rights, uh, to earn a living, to grow their crops, to uh, have their chickens, to plant olive trees, etc.? Of course I am against all those limitations, but it's not... Uh, it's not based on the South African system. It's based on uh, 
uh, a political uh, actually point of view that uh, that is an outcome of an, an occupation. Every occupation corrupts actually the occupier, corrupt the ruler, and uh, there is always. Uh, uh, resistance against occupation, which brings more and more severe uh, uh, orders and acts uh, from the occupier. But again, it's not South Africa. Well, of course, South Africa was also founded as an occupying country. It occupied the South, Af- the, the South Africans, the black Africans. But the basic thing is that the black people <coughs> do not have any, any rights. Uh, and... Uh, as an occupier ruler, actually Israel is a trustee for a short time. Let's hope that it will act according to the national law and uh, see herself as a trustee and not as a permanent ruler of the occupied territories. If, if, uh, of course there are uh, dangers, uh, if Israel would actually uh, see the territories uh, as a uh, permanent ter- territories that belong to Israel, then, of course, we, sh- we would have uh, measures that resemble very much the, African, the South African system. What about the uh, plight of the Palestinians living inside of Israel who cannot even actually call themselves Palestinians? The Israeli authorities, at this point anyway, uh, one doubts they will ever see themselves as trustees uh, over those Palestinians. I believe there's some 600,000 Palestinians living inside of, more, living inside of, okay, living inside of Israeli territory. Now, about the Israeli, Israeli, the Israeli Palestinians or the Israeli Arabs, uh, According to uh, the law, the law, there is no uh, uh, legal, uh, let's say, uh, uh, difference between the rights of the Palestinians and the rights of the Israelis within Israel. But, practically speaking, uh, there are, of course, a lot of limitations. Those limitations are not legal, uh, are not based on laws. At the beginning of, uh, after establishing the state of Israel, we had uh, legal limitations in our laws. But uh, most of those laws actually were cancelled. But of course, it's not a pleasure uh, to be uh, an Arab in Israel. Uh, they are suffering, they, they, they have their problems. Uh, but uh, I would say that the Palestinians in the occupied territories would like to have the same rights that the Arab population of Israel is having now. Would you like to add anything to that? I'd like to ask you, Ibrahim, about some of the tactics that have been adopted by the uh, security forces, Shin Bet, to intimidate Palestinians, uh, to make them fear for speaking out, um, talking specifically about uh, members of the security forces uh, masquerading as members of the press. Well, as a matter of fact, uh, there are a series of laws that have been uh, invented uh, by uh, the Israeli uh, Knesset, one of them is uh, the anti-terrorist law, you know, that we know as Tamir's law, which uh, Mr. Zekroni can elaborate, you know, that forbids any public identification or uh, statement that would might sound as an identification with a hostile organization. 
the same law applies on Jews. Yes, still, but as Palestinians, you know, and as you know, the overwhelming majority of the Palestinians uh, do support the PLO and see in it as their uh, uh, sole and legitimate representative. And therefore, if you want to write an editorial, at least this is the basic of a Palestinian belief. So you have uh, been uh, forbidden to utter such a statement. Well, for an Israeli, it is not essential. You know, he can go around around the bush, but for a Palestinian, it deals with his substantial, basic political ground. So you can say that the beginning of these limitations start with this, uh, I think, uh, horrible law. And therefore... The Palestinians uh, started from then to care about every statement they might give, politically speaking. The journalists have started to count every uh, sentence they would write in fear that... Well, I'm speaking about uh, Palestinian journalists. Uh, and I think even Palestinian journalists inside will be, you know, inside Israel will will be court-martialed if they dare to write an editorial in this uh, uh, in this tone. So this is the beginning, you know. Uh, so journalists could not have, uh, for instance, referendum could not ask people in the occupied territories to give their uh, idea about a certain or a specific subject that relates to their future. So this was uh, actually the beginning of the whole issue. Uh, another restriction is, again, as I have just mentioned, the approach towards Palestinian journalists. And the fact they are uh, taken as activists and uh, not journalists. Uh, the fact that we have to submit everything literally to the censorship, the fact that you have to wait sometimes days until you, you, you get back your material, and the fact that uh, you must come out with a magazine or a newspaper. You cannot wait. So sometimes you fill your newspaper and, or magazine with, you know, uh, silly material. I think here also comes a very important uh, issue that has not been discussed enough, uh, which is the Israeli intention to make uh, the Palestinian journalists look silly uh, to the, uh, in the eyes of the Palestinian community. I mean, let's say that the Palestinian readers will uh, read the Palestinian uh, newspaper the next day after severe events take place in the occupied territories and find nothing about it. What will these Palestinians say about the journalists? You know, you, you can imagine how many curses they will be cursed because Palestinian journalists cannot go to everybody and explain, well, look, we have to send this. And many fights took place, you know, between the Palestinian, you know, people and the Palestinian journalists because they came to the offices and accusing us of not, be, of not wanting to publish. And just imagine, so the results. I mean, this is an intention that has not been discussed. They wanted the Palestinian community to look down on the Palestinian journalists. So this is actually a way that the Israeli authorities are dividing and ruling. 
Well, I'm happy to tell you they have not fully succeeded, but the intention is there. I absolutely agree with uh, Ibrahim, but uh, he hints actually that the Palestinians should learn Hebrew in order to read the Israeli newspapers. They will find a lot of information about the occupied territories. Well, in this respect, I must admit that most of the Palestinians before the uprising used to wait until the Israeli newsreel on the Israeli TV because in that reel, in that bulletin, Palestinians used to know about the world, the Middle East, and Israel more than they could see in any other uh, TV. Uh, Palestinians used to watch the Israeli news bulletin in the Israeli TV in Arabic and look down upon it and not believe in it, and they still think it was propaganda. So their uh, rescue was in the 9 o'clock news bulletin in Hebrew. Many Palestinians, even who, those whose knowledge of Hebrew is very little, would watch uh, the TV. Uh, during the uprising, uh, I don't envy the Israelis or the Palestinians because uh, it seems uh, the Israeli news bulletin have become similar to other TV news bulletins in the Middle East. So we cannot see much anymore. And there would also be the question of the perspective because there's always a political perspective. There's no such thing as unbiased reporting or unbiased journalism. So if they have to see it through the eyes of the Israeli, that's going to politically change the content, no? Well, I, I believe the Palestinians have become really aware of uh, the news items. They will take the facts and throw the analysis. So at least uh, before the uprising or uh, until the very beginning of the uprising, people could learn a lot by looking at the Israeli news bulletin, uh, the Israeli TV news bulletin. And of course, uh, if you talk to Palestinian ordinary people, they will give you names of reporters, Israeli reporters, and differentiate you know, between them, and they will tell you this, is, this person is uh, relatively honest, and that person is, uh, is a security serviceman. So you have a very sophisticated readership or consumer of news. I'd like to go back to this question, uh, however, about the Israeli Defense Forces, um, their efforts to entrap uh, Palestinians or make Palestinians fearful of speaking to the news media, um, talk, speaking particularly about um, a, an event that happened um, when ABC was uh, Shin Bet or somebody, some organization like Shimbet, uh, masqueraded, was it Shimbet, masqueraded as, as uh, ABC News? Okay, Amnon. Yeah, I would say we have to understand one basic problem. All those limitations are an outcome of, of a political situation. Uh, those limitations are severe. The Shimbet, the security service, uh, will act against Palestinians. And that's the reason why we have to find a political solution. Without a political uh, settlement, all those restrictions and actions will exist, and they will be more severe. Uh, if the Intifada wouldn't influence the Israel to change the attitude towards the Palestinians, then the Palestinians, according to my estimation, 
will use more severe means. And then, of course, the Israeli security service and the Israeli, or the Israelis, the Israeli authority will use also more severe, actually, measures. And that's the reason why we should come as soon as possible. And I'm speaking now as an Israeli to save Israel as soon as possible, to save Israel as a democracy, to save Israel as a state that has some moral values. We have to come as soon as possible to a political settlement. Last month, I believe it was, a top PLO spokesperson, I think it was Abu Sharif, came out and offered uh, to hold a plebiscite in the occupied territories. Uh, he said for the PLO that if they choose us as uh, their representatives, fine, we accept it, and you, the Israelis, accept it. However, if they choose somebody else, fair enough, we'll accept that too. Is this Would this not be the first step to having some sort of serious negotiations and serious recognition of uh, a two-state solution? Of course, it's a very important step. It's not the first step. The Palestinians actually indicated in the past that they are willing to come to a settlement with Israel. But it, it is ha ha are the Israeli authorities accepting this offer of having a plebiscite at this at this time. I know the PLO has, uh, for a long time, made itself very available to, to talks. Um, I'm talking about this, I wouldn't even call it a challenge, but this offer, this, this offer it could, the, the Israeli authorities could take at this particular point. Are they taking them up on this? To my regret, they are not uh, actually taking uh, those uh, proposals seriously. And uh, if they would take it seriously, then for sure you wouldn't interview us because uh, uh, the uprising would be, uh, the Palestinians would stop the uprising, the Intifada, they will wait for a solution. But the Israelis uh, prefer actually uh, not to come to a settlement. Uh, the government, which includes uh, both uh, big parties, Likud and Labour, doesn't come to, to an agreement, and actually even the Labour Party is not willing to give back the, the territories in order to come to a, a final solution. Could you tell me, Ibrahim, what the response from the international community has been to the closure of the Palestine Press Service? Well, the response has been, you know, internationally wide. Many foreign ministers uh, condemned the closure down of Palestine Press Services. The EEC included a uh, uh, sentence against the closure down of Palestine Press Services. Many journalists uh, all over the world sent telegrams to Mr. Shamir against the closure down of, uh, and, you know, the Committee for the Protection of Journalists also uh, sent a telegram in this respect. Uh, the question is uh, that uh, we are dealing with a blind policymakers in Israel. They don't want to listen to anything. But still, our hopes lie in the international com uh, community. I mean, uh, pressure must be exerted against Israel in this respect, and I would say to save Israel from itself, as my friend Zichroni uh, has previously mentioned. Has there been any uh, uh, professional response from the Israeli Jewish uh, journalistic community? 
I would say the committee of the Israeli journalists uh, also sent a telegram protesting the closure down. The Israeli Regional Committee of Journalists sent a telegram against the closure down of the office. And uh, uh, as a matter of fact, I asked uh, the chairman of the committee, uh, I, I called the chairman of the committee, thanked him for the protest, and complained that it is not enough and the Israeli journalists should do more vis-a-vis -vis their Palestinian colleagues. Uh, the question is, what can they do? I think the Israeli journalists, at least most of them, have been harassed similarly uh, in the, during the uprising. I mean, relatively speaking, of course, uh, they were forbidden to cover uh, the area. Uh, I would say also the Israeli uh, journalists uh, inter intervened concerning Radwan Abayash, and I think Shamir was forced to release Mr. Radwan Abayash, despite the fact that the release came only five days before his six months expired. But he didn't renew the administrative order. Yeah. Uh, so he was out as a good sign to the journalists, the Israeli journalists who were supposed to fly to Holland to participate in the international conference uh, for the journalists. I believe they exerted heavy pressure, telling Shamir, well, look, we'll come back to you with heavy uh, uh, resolutions against Israel, so you better do something. So I think Shamir searched out and found that by releasing Mr. Radwan Abayash, who is the head of the Arab Journalist Association, would offer the Israeli journalists something. What I uh, want to add for this is that, I mean, many Israeli journalists phoned me in the office and expressed their support and expressed their anger concerning the closure down of the office. I hope they will do something more. I think uh, the Israeli journalists, who at least been covering the West Bank and know what the Palestinians think and realize that uh, the overwhelming majority of the Palestinians who deal with them really would like to come to a peace settlement with Israel, I believe the Israeli journalists must do more than they are doing now. What do you think the future is for the Palestine Press Service? Well, I hope it will be reopened, uh, first of all, and uh, I'll wait and see until the end of September. But I have uh, got many promises from uh, very high-ranking people throughout the world, including ministers, who would intervene. Uh, a lot depends on the political uh, development. Amnon, what do you think the uh, future is for the Palestine Press Service as the attorney for that organization. To my regret, Ibrahim didn't uh, ask me to appeal against the, the decision before the High Court of Justice. Uh, let's hope that uh, uh, the government won't renew the order and the office will be open again. If not, then uh, of course it's a bad sign for uh, Israel as preventing uh, freedom of expression and uh, regularly work of journalists. I just have one more question. I know you're running out of time. Could, could you uh, face any repercussions for coming to the States and um, speaking out as you have been? Well, I hope not. 
uh, <laughs> despite the fact no, that nobody knows. I hope not. Well, you know, uh, Mr. Zekhroni, who is uh, my friend and who is also a lawyer, I think will do his best to at least defend me properly. And I can tell you, in this respect, I have no worries. I have a very good lawyer. Thank you. Uh, could you tell me about the um, ABC uh, Shinbet masquerading or assuming the identity of, of uh, journalists? Well, there were reports in the newspapers uh, about uh, this incident, uh, which was published, you know, in the Israeli and Arab press in Jerusalem, uh, that uh, some people, assuming the identity of ABC crewmen, went to a village called Salfit near Nablus and asked to interview some uh, leaders there, uh, some people, and they submitted a list of names. So people take them to those people, and they immediately arrested them. In another case, uh, some uh, unidentified people uh, assume the identity of progressive Israelis who would like to talk to Palestinians. They also submitted some names, and they talked to the people and arrested them. Uh, I think the, the, there are two aspects for these two incidents. First, you know that progressive Israelis representing Peace Now and uh, some other delegations went in a tour, and they were, they were very well received by the Palestinians. Uh, so uh, this means that the Israeli authorities would like to, to disconnect the Israeli progressive uh, forces from the Palestinians. And the second way, uh, the second target is that Israelis are annoyed by the openness of the Palestinian community towards the foreign press, and they want to, to cut that openness again. It again can be... Uh, uh, explained within the policy of assuming a complete blackout on what happens on the territories. What happened to the Palestinians whose names were given to these uh, unidentified individuals? They were immediately arrested. Okay, thank you.